Today's episode is sponsored by Casper. You can start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper and get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash best and using the code best at checkout. That's casper.com slash best and use the promo code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. And now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn how we came to have some of the mandatory minimum laws that we do, how they came about in part from a sense of desperation from very well-meaning legislators, and how prosecutors have used those laws to make things worse. But we will also learn that there is a movement afoot to turn things around. Clips today come from Jacobin Radio, The Ezra Klein Show, Real Justice, and a TED Talk from Adam Foss. James Foreman Jr. is a professor at the Yale Law School. He's the son of the distinguished civil rights activist James Foreman, who was most notably associated with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the 1960s. The younger Foreman spent six years as a public defender in D.C., an experience that is central to the analysis presented in his book, Locking Up Our Own Crime and Punishment in Black America. In my opening question, I asked Foreman to explore the limitations of the new Jim Crow argument, which he expressed in review of Michelle Alexander's book published in the Yale Law Journal. He demurred some, but what I was getting after is a point that he makes in that review, that while the original Jim Crow made no class distinctions among black people, mass incarceration does. Most of our present population, regardless of color, comes to the ranks of the poor. Just 1-2% to of the people behind bars, for example, have college degrees, and the risk of a black college graduate going to prison actually declined between 1979 and 1999. There is no doubt that our criminal justice system is deeply racist, but saying that it revives Jim Crow obscures some important points. Okay, on to James Foreman, Jr. The Michelle Alexander book, The New Jim Crow, has been a very influential thing. Uh, It's uh, shaped the way a lot of people think about the problems of mass incarceration. I first became aware of your work with your review of, uh, of her book, and then your book develops some of those themes. But uh, the, the whole new Jim Crow model is uh, not necessarily a fruitful way to think about mass incarceration, is it? Well, I think it partially is. So I would want to start there because I think in a lot of ways my book, my book is building on that work um, more so than, you know, rebutting it. And so I don't think we can understand the history of this country, and certainly not the history of the criminal justice system, without um, really deeply understanding the role that racism has played in forming every structure of our, of our government, of our constitution, um, of our legal system, of our criminal justice system, of our policing structures. And so I think that uh, the New Jim Crow, and not just the New Jim Crow, but books like Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, Between the World and Me by ta Coates, and many other books that are, are less well-known, but that academics have been producing over the last 10 and 15 years, I think have done, and, and really more than that, 20, 25 years, have done an amazing job of, of documenting all of the ways in which indifference to black suffering has helped to create the criminal justice system that we have today. For me, and and indeed, those motivations and that critique uh, is part of what led me to become a public defender in the 1990s. Um, And what I learned when I became a public defender in Washington, D.C., and practiced in a majority African-American jurisdiction with a police force that was majority black, and judges, many of whom were African-American, 
and a legislature that was passing gun laws and drug laws that was majority African-American. What I learned was that although that critique is, is, is correct in many ways, it doesn't tell the whole story because I was grappling with why so many of my African-American counterparts in the criminal justice system didn't see it as the civil rights issue. I became a public defender because I saw this work as the civil rights issue of my generation. But when I go in and I practice in criminal court in Washington, D.C., and I have clients that are receiving extremely long sentences, um, handed down in many cases from African-American elected officials and judges, I have to stop and ask myself the question, is this the whole story? That is to say, is, is racism and white supremacy, which is central, but is it the whole story? And that's what I try to explore in my book is the other forces that are at play um, that help to explain how we got to 2.2 million people in prison, 7 million people under criminal justice supervision. So I think I'm adding to um, that account as opposed to contradicting it. So you open the book with uh, some stories from the, the 70s of uh, first, uh, there was an effort in the DC City Council and DC at this point had just won home rule from Congress, right? Uh, so we had a, a new um, city council, new mayor, new system of government. Uh, and they were contemplating uh, reducing the penalties for marijuana possession uh, at a time when that was a popular move. Uh, it's taken, uh, what, 40 years to get back to there now. But um, what about that issue of, of, uh, of uh, softening the penalties for, for marijuana possession? How did that play out in, in the mid-1970s? Well, this is one of the things that I found the most striking when I began the research. So I knew that I wanted to write a book that really tried to look at what's happened in our criminal justice system over the last 40 and 50 years through the lens of African-American elected officials, judges, prosecutors, police chiefs, police officers, and activists. And D.C. was the natural city to use as a study because, as you say, in 1975, D.C. Achieved, achieved a measure of home rule. And what that included was the right to elect a majority black city council. And through some quirks in our legal structure, that meant that the city council, after a couple of years, had the authority to pass criminal law, right? So what normally would be the responsibility of state government in D.C. was passed by this majority black city council. In the first city council in 1975, which included, among other people, Marion Barry, who would later famously go on to become mayor, 11 out of the 13 members were African-American. And one of the first things that the city council debated was whether to decriminalize marijuana, which, as you say, was something that was being contemplated and had passed in a number of states. Jimmy Carter was even talking about it at the federal level as a possibility. In D.C., the push for marijuana decriminalization came from one of the two white members of the city council, actually, a guy, a guy with an unusual biography, Dave Clark. He went to Howard Law School. He worked with Martin Luther King, organizing the Poor People's March in 1968. And he went on to become a lawyer for poor people himself before deciding to put his hat in the ring and run for city council. And he won. And he pushed immediately to decriminalize marijuana possession. What was fascinating to me was the opposition. The opposition came from principally African-American ministers and a black city council member, black nationalists, also a minister by the name of Doug Moore. And here's the crucial thing to understand about their opposition. 
Because if you had asked me before I went into this research, first of all, I would have been surprised to know that that had been the leading source of the opposition, given everything we know today about the damage the drug war has done to African-American communities. But more than that, I would have assumed, well, if people were opposed, they were people that just didn't have the black community's best interests at heart. But that's not it. It's more complicated than that. Uh, the black ministers who were led the opposition very much did so out of a real heartfelt concern that marijuana would be a gateway drug to harder drugs, including heroin. To an extent, many people laugh at that today, but it's important to understand that in 1975, the nation had just come off of its first real round of battle with, with heroin addiction. In D.C. in 1963, they tested everybody entering the D.C. jail for heroin. 3% of the people tested positive. By 1969, it was 45%. So this is an epidemic that's destroying black communities and lots of members of the black establishment and influential African-Americans are saying, hey, don't decriminalize marijuana because if you do, our young people will start there and move on to heroin. Jackie Robinson, the, the baseball hero, went around to black churches and community groups in the early 1970s and said, don't decriminalize marijuana because my son Jackie Jr. is a heroin addict and he started with marijuana. Right. So this moved a lot of the opposition. So it wasn't that they didn't care about black young people. They did care. They just underestimated the harms of criminalization and they overstated the harms of marijuana use. You say uh, at several points in the book that uh, we look and see this system now where we've got millions of people behind bars, you know, millions more uh, under control of the criminal justice system. And it's easy to forget that it took a whole series of decisions over the years, little decisions in many different jurisdictions to get us to this place. I mean, this is a really complicated history. There's no simple story of how we got to over 2 million people behind bars. Well, I think that's right. And that, in a lot of ways, is the heart of my argument. I think it's so tempting when we look at something so massive um, and such a, a profound human rights crisis. It's tempting to try to search for, you know, a particular speech. You know, I read book after book that says, you know, well, Nixon launched the war on crime and then Reagan launched the war on drugs. And, and of course, they did. They did these things. And those absolutely contributed. But what I want to point out to readers is so many of the smaller, tiny decisions that we don't we barely even notice that in many cases were made by people who were much more well-intentioned than somebody like a Richard Nixon or a Ronald Reagan that contributed to this. So one of the stories that I tell in the book is about the city council member. Actually, it's the same one, Dave Clark, and how in the early 80s, he's bombarded with letters from constituents saying that there are addicts uh, nodding off, you know, heroin has come back and people are sitting on my stoop and they're nodding off and they're bothering my kids as I walk to school and you got to do something about it. And what Dave Clark does is he takes those letters and he sends them to the head of the relevant public agency. He gets a letter back from the head of the agency who says, yep, yeah, we're on it. We got you, Councilman Clark. We received this complaint. Clark forwards those letters back to the constituent and you think, okay, well, he's done his job. But what's the agency that he sends it to? Does he send it to the head of the Department of Mental Health, the head of addiction services, the head of drug treatment? No, he sends it to the police chief. Because in this country, even somebody like a Dave Clark, who's a liberal, who's pro-legalization, somebody like him still thinks of an addict sitting on a corner, nodding off, bothering a citizen as a police problem. 
not as a treatment problem, not as a counseling problem, not as a mental health and recovery problem. The point that I make in the book is those sorts of tiny decisions like that, the choice to refer a letter from a constituent to the police chief rather than to the head of addiction services, those choices over 50 states, 3,000 counties across our criminal justice system over 50 years help to produce mass incarceration. And just one more thing on that. It's not just the system that we think of, that is to say, the police prosecutors, probation officers, it's also private employers. So I really challenge people. There are a number of stories in my book where people got arrested for small amounts of marijuana in one case, uh, heroin in another case, and then they lost their jobs. That's not the responsibility of the criminal justice system in, mar- in, in large part. That's the responsibility of private industry. So I want everybody who's listening to this audience, thinking about this issue, turning to themselves and asking, well, what are, what are my employer's policies about hiring people with criminal convictions? Do we have a blanket exclusion? Do we discourage people even from applying by having the second or third question on the application form be, do you have a criminal conviction? In many cases, the answer will be yes. And what I want to say to people is, you're responsible too, right? We're, that's one of the arguments of this book is that we can't call this a they problem. We can't call this a them problem. We need to understand this as an us problem. We've created it and we've got to fix it. And that means all of us. When I was a public defender, I noticed a lot of things that disturbed me. Um, I did the work. I, I came to do the work because I wanted to help poor people. And I thought helping poor people charged with crimes was the greatest calling. Um, what I saw was unjust treatment of my clients. I saw, first of all, I only had African-American clients. I think I may have had two white clients in all the years that I was a public defender. Wow. Whenever I saw white clients, I saw very different treatment. I particularly saw very different treatment of my black clients when the alleged victims of their crimes were white, right? Those cases would be prosecuted more vigorously. Um, there would not be good plea offers. So I saw a lot of in- injustices. But the one thing I saw that really fascinated me in in a negative sense that I I was stunned by was the incredible power of prosecutors, the unchecked power of prosecutors, which is what led me to study that field. A question I think that somebody in the audience could have hearing that is, well, did you just have Black clients because the crime rate is so much higher among African-Americans? You have a great chapter on the book on that, but but can you talk through that a bit? Because I think that it's important as we set the basis for this conversation to to sort of set a, a framework around what are crime rates in the country? And so right. what might we expect uh, in this position where we were just administering justice in a race-neutral way? Right. So I think people see all these Black people being arrested, all these Black people in prisons, and they think, oh, that means Black people are committing all of the crimes. Well, actually, it's sort of a a vicious cycle, and it's not quite that simple. If the only people who police officers are arresting, stopping, searching, and arresting are African-American, then of course they're going to be the only people who are in the system and the only people who are 
ultimately imprisoned. And, and that's the problem. You know, it's not that whites don't commit crimes. Let's, let's take the, the crime of drug possession, for example. All the statistics show that African-Americans do not use drugs in any greater percentage than whites do. You know, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, other organizations that have all come to that conclusion. But because of the way that laws are enforced, and I focus on drugs for a reason, because they're, the war on drugs caused our prisons and jails to be filled up. So drug offenses, both possession and other drug offenses, are responsible for filling up our prisons and jails to where they are today. But whites who use drugs, according to all of these organizations, in the same proportion as blacks, are not arrested. They're not stopped. They are not pulled into the criminal justice system. So you have similarly situated people who are behaving the same way, doing the same acts, who are treated differently. And, you know, that's you know, one of the biggest problems in our criminal justice system, the unwarranted racial disparities in our system. Um, so I think, you know, when people look at a lot of these statistics on the back end, they're reaching some unfair conclusions. So I want to hold here for a second because there's a really fascinating chapter in your book, I think by Mark Maurer, is mm-hmm. that the way you say his name, uh, about this. And so first I want to say I was arrested for drug possession when I was a kid. Uh, I had pot. Uh, and nobody charged me with anything. Uh, you know, there's a lot of privilege embedded in that story. A lot of people I've known as I've uh, gotten older, not as much now, but, but mm-hmm. when I was younger and was in college, used drugs, nothing happened to any of them. So first, certainly my experience is that there's a large amount of drug use uh, among different populations. And what, what Maurer argues, as I understood it, and I'm curious if this accords with your experience, is that one of the things that happens is that particularly in these early, less serious crimes, right, do you want to charge somebody for having pot or do you want to charge somebody for having cocaine or having been drunk and disorderly, which I have certainly been when I was in college? I think I'm making myself sound cooler in college <laughs> than I actually was, but but I, I do it to make a point, which is there's a lot of discretion at that point in the system. And then later on, if you do something a little bit more serious, when the prosecutor or, or others in the system are deciding how to treat you, the question of a record becomes very important. Yes. And the question of how you are viewed at that earlier moment, whether you're viewed as somebody dangerous or some a good kid just making a mistake, yes. becomes very important. And, and that's where um, that seems to have in the literature a fair amount of uh, a fair amount of effect on who ends up being charged with crimes and arrested for crimes and being seen as criminal later in life. Was that true when you were a public defender? Did you see that? Absolutely. I mean, of course, we didn't see the people who weren't getting arrested. We wouldn't see the college kids because they never got that far, the the very point that you're making. Um, And I think Mark makes an excellent point. Mark Maurer, the head of the Sentencing Project, who's done great work on this issue for so many years, is that when it comes to murder, if you murder someone and you get caught, whether you're black or white, rich or poor, most of the time, although although I've, there have been instances, and in my book, Arbitrary Justice, I talk about instances of a white college kid at Georgetown who actually murdered someone and didn't get indicted. But that rarely happens. Usually the very serious crimes, prosecutors are going to charge you. But with the lower level crimes and even some of the lower level crimes that carry a lot of time, like a lot of these drug offenses, particularly distribution cases, carry a lot of time, there's a huge amount of discretion. 
And so if you've got the college kid who most of the time isn't going to get arrested at all, by the way, yeah, usually. Yeah, I just was really bad at this. <laughs> usually there's no arrest at all. Uh, but even if there is an arrest, um, and that's why I focus on prosecutors so much, the prosecutor has a tremendous amount of discretion. Prosecutors are the most powerful individuals in our criminal justice system because they decide not only what to charge, they can decide not to charge at all. They can decide to decline charges altogether. They decide what to charge the person with. For example, if you were caught with a certain amount of drugs, the prosecutor's got a lot of discretion. That prosecutor can charge you with possession, which is a misdemeanor that may carry less than a year in jail, depending on the amount. She might charge you with possession with intent to distribute, which is a felony that if it's cocaine, for example, there's a mandatory minimum sentence, oftentimes a very long sentence at the end. Or the prosecutor can decide not to charge you at all. And that decision is made behind closed doors. There's no transparency. It's not in open court. And the prosecutor doesn't have to answer to anyone. So that's when those disparities start to take place. And that's what's so frightening about it to me is that the most powerful decisions that prosecutors make, they make those decisions behind closed doors and they're not accountable to anyone. I mean, theoretically, if they're elected, they're accountable to their constituents. But when prosecutors run for office, they don't talk about their charging policies and their plea bargaining policies. And no one knows. No one has the information to really be able to judge whether they're doing their jobs fairly. And so that's why I think we really need to focus more on prosecutors because, yes, police officers have a tremendous amount of discretion on the street, and that's so incredibly important. But police officers only have the power to bring people to the courthouse door. It is the prosecutor who decides whether they remain there and what happens to them after that. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper, and they are a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models now, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. You do spend a third of your life asleep, after all, so you should be comfortable. You can order yours with confidence backed by Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial, and it'll be delivered right to your door in an impossibly small-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. For any kids in the house, the fun of unboxing your Casper is definitely going to be the highlight of the week. I can attest to this uh, because I was the relative kid in the house a couple years back when my Casper arrived. Uh, of course, it's been the years of sleeping on the Casper since then. That's brought the real joy. You can get $50 toward any mattresses by visiting casper.com slash best and using the code best at checkout. That's casper.com slash best. Offer code best for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. I'm speaking with James Foreman Jr., author of Locking Up Our Own. Your colleague uh, James Whitman argues, you know, that the punit the culture of America is deeply punitive. You know, going way back, these are just many manifestations of this long-standing punitive 
impulse. It seems commonsensical to refer an issue like this to the police department, but it also seems like the American reflex is to, to turn to law and order as a response rather than uh, something more sympathetic. Well, that's exactly right. And I think you see this in all aspects of our politics and culture, um, not just in the criminal justice system. But so, for example, you know, we're currently debating right now whether to, uh, you know, the Congress and the Senate are considering, and it seems likely that they will pass, who knows, um, something that would devastate and gut healthcare for poor people, for working people, for older people in this country, right? They want to destroy uh, Medicaid, um, which is responsible for 49% of the births in this country, 67% of the people in nursing homes are paid for by Medicaid. That is just mean-spirited. And that kind of impulse, that notion that if you're struggling, if you're working class, if you're on the margins, we aren't going to do anything for you through government. What we're going to do is we're going to make life as easy and as good as possible for people at the top and the rest be damned. That instinct, that's an aspect of the punitiveness, right, that Jim Whitman is talking about. And then it also plays itself out in the criminal justice system because, and you see these arguments all the time, whenever there's a discussion about whether we should provide better health care for prisoners or better education for people who are incarcerated, somebody turns around and says, well, I don't have health care. I don't have, my higher education isn't funded. Why are you funding higher education for people who are incarcerated? To which I want to say, you're right, you don't have health care and you don't have higher education paid for. And those are problems. And as a society, we got to fix them. But because we're so mean spirited in some of those other dimensions, then it almost becomes natural to become mean spirited toward the, this class of people that we've you know, defined as the other and we've defined as despised. One of the decisions that got us to this, uh, this state of mass incarceration was the spread of mandatory minimums. And uh, D.C. had a referendum on that. Could you tell us the story of the D.C. referendum on uh, mandatory minimums? Absolutely. Uh, and the mandatory minimums, I think we have to connect those to the related topic, which gets a little bit of less attention, but I try to connect it in a book, which is to the maximum. So the maximum available sentence is one issue, and then the mandatory minimum is another issue, and they're, and they're related. So in D.C., there was a... A, a move to revise the drug laws. They hadn't been updated since the 1930s and 1940s. And everybody agreed that they had aspects that needed to be fixed. They treated possession and sale the, the same way. They lumped a lots of drugs together that should have been treated differently. So they needed to be reformed. But there was a push from uh, African-American city council member by the name of John Ray and a retired police chief by the name of Bertel Jefferson and also African-American. And they pushed not just to um, rationalize the laws and update them, but to make them much, much tougher. And what they wanted to do was they wanted mandatory minimums, both for drug offenses and also for gun offenses, for possession of a gun during a crime, et cetera. And they wanted much longer maximums. And they, they got the maximums initially through the city council, and then they went back to the voters a year later and they said to the voters, hey, your elected representatives didn't go far enough. They did not pass mandatory minimums, and they presented that issue to the voters. And in an era when crime was rising, heroin, as I mentioned before, was coming back again in the early 1980s. Lots of people were scared. 
Uh, the left and progressives didn't have great answers. They weren't presenting great alternatives. They really that the move from the left was just to say, well, don't do that. Mandatory minimums aren't a good thing. Treatment beds were underfunded. There was only one treatment bed for every 10 people who needed it at the time. And in such an era and in such a context, they were able to get the city's voters to pass mandatory minimum laws. And the important thing here to understand is that they passed in every part of the city and by a wide margin. So this was a city that was at the time over 60% African-American voting to impose mandatory minimum sentences that in the end would have devastating consequences for um, many in that same community. And it's important to remember this is, you know, this city, like much of the rest of the country, uh, the primary victims of crime at this point were, were poor black people. They're the ones who are uh, getting shot. They're the ones whose kids were dying of drug overdoses. Um, so there, there's a, a definite desperation in the air and uh, people uh, lurched after what seemed like a, a simple solution. That's exactly right. That's a really nice summary of, of, of the situation. I mean, one of the things that I found when I went and did the research a lot, of, a lot of the former council members have turned their papers over to various libraries and archives around the city. George Washington University has the fullest collection. And when you go and you read, and, and those papers include letters from citizens. And when you go and read letters from mostly African-American citizens to mostly African-American elected officials in the 70s and 80s, the pain and the anguish and the desperation really leaps off the pages. You see people writing and saying, you know, I feel like a prisoner in my own home. I feel like a stranger on my own streets. I cannot walk my child to school because there are drug dealers doing sales on the corner and I don't want my kid to see that. I can't leave him in the park after school because there's shooting in the park and there's dirty syringes and there's needles in the park. And over and over again, they say, you got to do something. You have to fix this. And here's the thing that I think is important to remember, and you mentioned this when you talked about who the victims were. The people who are passing these tougher laws come out of a history, right? These are African-American elected officials who remember when for centuries, letters like that wouldn't even be written because there wasn't any sense in the black community that the mostly white elected officials were going to give anything, give a care, right, about those complaints. There's a long history of under enforcement and under protection in black America, right? Southern sheriffs in cahoots with the Klan. They said, oh, this is not homicide. That's just another dead black person. And they didn't use the words black person, right? So that history of under protection, now you have this generation of African-American elected officials coming into office in the 1970s and the 1980s, right? They're bound and determined to change that, they want to respond to those letter writers. So just as you said, grasping at solutions, right, this air of desperation, and in many cases, turning towards kind of short-term fixes. In part, we have to also acknowledge they did ask for more structural reforms at the same time, right? They did also say, and I have example after example of this in the book of elected officials saying, yeah, we need more police, we need more prosecutors, we might even need more prisons, but we also need better housing and an end to segregation and jobs brought back to the city and better schools and drug treatment. But for those things, they needed the federal government to respond, right? There they needed Congress. They needed Congress to, pl to pass a Marshall Plan for urban America, right, to reinvest in black communities the way we did in Europe after World War II. They needed Congress to pass national gun control. But Congress 
didn't care much about those African-American letter writers that I just told you about. And so they didn't do it. And so the people that I'm writing about in this story, I think it's fair to say they had an all of the above strategy to fighting crime and violence. They wanted to do everything. But we got in our community one of the above. And the one of the above that we got was law enforcement. think about mass incarceration. Uh, we had this huge crime wave in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. Murder went way, way up. Armed robbery, assault, all of it went up. There's a tremendous amount of crime in heavily African-American communities. And, and things like the crime bill and the harsher sentencing measures, they passed with support from African-American elected officials, from African-American activist groups. There's this famous quote from Jesse Jackson where he says that it's his great shame that when he hears footsteps behind him at night, he is comforted when he turns around and it's a white man. There's a way of looking at this that it's about racism, and then there's a way of looking at this that, that, that there was a real crime problem that had somewhat mysterious origins and somewhat mysterious uh, reasons for its decline, but that the explanation is there, and this sort of new view of it, that it's all implicit bias and it's all racism, is ahistorical. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, just to make sure I'm understanding your question. You're saying the new view is that it's implicit that, that, bias. That, that the conversation we're having mm-hmm. does not account for the context in which a lot of these bills were passed. They were not. They were passed with a lot of support from the black community. They were seen as protective of a black community that, in some ways, was underpoliced um, and that was often the victim of huge, huge crime waves. And so there can be a, a version of this where it looks like it was all done unto, but there was also agency here. How do you think about that? How do you think about that? This, this that is period? what I think about that period. Um, you're right. You know, a lot of the crime that was going on was going on in predominantly black communities, right? Were you the the drug crimes, the violence as a result of those drug crimes were going on in black communities. So you had the black caucus when those that terrible crime bill was passed, supporting it. Uh, because they thought at the time that they were doing something to protect the black communities. I think the problem with that crime bill and so many of those those crime bills that were passed even on the state level was that they were passed without any information, without any evidence, without any hearings, right? So the problem with these bills was that there was no research done to show what would be the impact of passing these bills on those communities, right? Um, at the time, no one could predict, and and some of the what we would consider to be very progressive members of the Black Caucus supported it, did not realize at the time when they were passing these bills that had mandatory minimum sentences and all of that, that it would result in the huge racial disparities that it produced, right? I don't think there was an awareness that, um, I think a lot of people when they were passing mandatory minimum sentences, they, they thought this will this will make it fair because we've got all these judges and the judges have all this discretion. And when when there's a white defendant before them, they're giving them a break and they're not giving a black defendant break. Now everybody's going to be treated the same. And so this is going to bring equality and it's going to bring fairness. So you had sort of this weird alliance between people on the left and the right saying for different reasons, deciding they wanted these mandatory minimum sentences as well. What happened was it didn't get rid of discretion. It simply transferred that, that discretion from uh, judges to prosecutors. And now prosecutors 
could decide, as they always had, but now they had even more tools and more ammunition to do this, whether to charge and what to charge the person with. And the plea bargaining power, which we haven't talked about at all. Prosecutors, when they decide to charge, they also have the power to offer what's called plea, plea offers. And right, so they have a tremendous amount of discretion. So they can pile on all of these charges, these mandatory minimum offenses. A defendant facing 10, 20, 30 mandatory years in prison to life, maybe more, is of course going to feel incredible pressure to, to get out of that. And so a prosecutor will say, I'll tell you what, I'll drop three of these 10-year mandatory minimums if you plead guilty to one. A person facing that kind of time is, even if they're not guilty or even if they have a defense, they're probably going to take that plea because going to trial is risky business. If they go to trial, they'll be convicted of all of those offenses and they'll spend the rest of their lives in prison. This has happened. There's so many stories about that, that, about that happening. And so what happened was the power was transferred to prosecutors they would make these plea offers. 95% of all cases in our criminal justice system are resolved by way of guilty pleas. People think all these trials are going on. They're watching Law and Order and seeing trials. And there's not a lot of trials going on. There's a lot of people pleading guilty because they're facing these incredible, incredible amounts of time in prison. So my point is this. I think it happened at that time because no one could predict where we would end up. And then decades later, I think people were looking back saying, we're not any safer, right? Um, you know, people well, hasn't crime dropped a lot? Crime has dropped, but if you talk to criminologists, they'll tell you there's a real complicated mixture of reasons why crime is, has dropped. It's certainly not just higher sentences, and most will tell you it's not just this. It's a combination of economic reasons, the economy, a lot of different reasons come together because crime goes up and down, you know, if you look historically— and there's complicated reasons for that. But if you look at, you know, just just mandatory minimum sentences, no one will tell you that, you know, that's why crime dropped, especially when you look at all the negative consequences as a result of that, right? Lives being thrown away for years, the collateral consequences, families being destroyed, you know, people not being able to reenter society. So if you look at those, all the harms, certainly— there's no comparison. So I guess my point is that people are now looking back and you had you had President Clinton not quite apologizing for his role in in you know the crime bill, not quite, not quite enough of an apology, but acknowledging that it was a mistake. You had Hillary Clinton saying that. But you also have African American legislators who who now are looking back saying that was a mistake. And that's why when we when legislators pass these laws, they need to be careful to look at the impact, the racial impact of it and, and other impacts as well. And that didn't happen. And now we're paying price. You have reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here is Sean King to tell you exactly what you can do about it. Hey, everybody, I'm Sean King, and I'm excited to talk to you today about the real justice teams that we're forming all over the country. Some of you may have already seen the work that we did to help elect new prosecutors 
in San Antonio or Dallas or Philadelphia or in Portsmouth, Virginia. It just took an enormous amount of money and resource and time and energy. And we won three of those four races. There are 2,400 elected prosecutors all over the country. And it's taken us nearly a year and half a million dollars to change the game in four of those races. This year, maybe we could do this 10 more times, maybe 15 at most. But right now, that would mean there'd be 2,385 DA's races that we never touched. So the only way that we're really gonna be able to change the game is if we build local teams. People really care about injustice. They're bothered by it, but they just don't know what to do. People tell me all the time that they're disturbed by police brutality. Uh, they're disturbed by mass incarceration. They want to do something about it. Their children want to do something about it. You want to do something about it, but you don't know what that next action step is. Well, changing the face of America's district attorneys is how we're going to change the justice system from the inside out. DAs are really the, the local gatekeepers of the entire justice system. They decide who's prosecuted, how hard they're prosecuted, what sentencing they get. They decide what cases are thrown out or which ones are taken seriously. They're the ones who build cases against police corruption or, or police brutality. And if we have somebody in office who actually is bothered by these things, or who understands that at the root of mass incarceration is bigotry or racism or white supremacy, when we have people who understand those concepts, it changes the game. As we build these teams from the ground up, First, we're just trying to find out who in your city cares about injustice, who in your family cares about injustice. And we want to help you build these teams from the ground up so that when your city or your county has a prosecutor's race, the team is already in place. So all you need to do right here below the video, there's a simple contact form that you can complete. Make sure the information is correct and you'll know that you typed it in correctly because you almost immediately will get a confirmation from me or the team and uh, pretty soon you'll hear from us about what we're gonna do to help you build a local team. We're excited that you took this step. Please share this with all your friends and family. Share it on social media. Let people know that you want real justice in your city. Take care. The following are my opinions and do not reflect the opinions or policies of any particular prosecutor's office. <laughs> I am a prosecutor. I believe in law and order. I'm the adopted son of a police officer, a Marine, and a hairdresser. I believe in accountability and that we should all be safe in our communities. I love my job and the people that do it. I just think that it's our responsibility to do it better. By a show of hands, how many of you by the age of 25 had either acted up in school, went somewhere you were specifically told to stay out of, or drank alcohol before your legal age? <laughs> All right. How many of you shoplifted, tried an illegal drug, or got into a physical fight, yes, even with a sibling? Now... 
How many of you ever spent one day in jail for any of those decisions? How many of you sitting here today think that you are a danger to society or should be defined by those actions of youthful indiscretion? <laughs> point, point taken. When we talk about criminal justice reform, we often focus on, on a few things, and, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. But first, I'm going to, since you shared with me, I'm going to give you a confession on my part. I went to law school to make money. I had no interest in being a public servant. I had no interest in the criminal law, and I definitely didn't think that I would ever be a prosecutor. Near the end of my first year of law school, I got an internship in the Roxbury Division of the Boston Municipal Court. I knew of Roxbury as an impoverished neighborhood in Boston plagued by gun violence and drug crime. My life in my legal career changed the first day of that internship. I walked into a courtroom and I saw an auditorium of people who one by one would approach the front of that courtroom to say two words and two words only, not guilty. They were predominantly black and brown. And then a judge, a defense attorney, and a prosecutor would make life-altering decisions about that person without their input. They were predominantly white. As each person, one by one, approached the front of that courtroom, I couldn't stop but think, how did they get here? I wanted to know their stories. And as the prosecutor read the facts of each case, I was thinking to myself, we could have predicted that. That seems so preventable. Not because I was an expert in criminal law, but because it was common sense. Over the course of the internship, I began to recognize people in the auditorium, not because they were criminal masterminds, but because they were coming to us for help and we were sending them out without any. My second year of law school, I worked as a paralegal for a defense attorney, and in that experience, I met many young men accused of murder. Even in our worst, I saw human stories. And they all contained childhood trauma, victimization, poverty, loss, disengagement from school, early interaction with the police and the criminal justice system, all leading to a seat in a courtroom. Those convicted of murder were condemned to die in prison, and it was during those meetings with those men that I couldn't fathom why we would spend so much money to keep this one person in jail for the next 80 years when we could have reinvested it up front and perhaps prevented the whole thing from happening in the first place. My third year of law school, I defended people accused of small street crimes, mostly mentally ill, mostly homeless, mostly drug addicted, all in need of help. They would come to us, and we would send them away without that help. They were in need of our assistance, but we weren't giving them any. Prosecuted, adjudged, and defended by people who knew nothing about them. The staggering inefficiency is what drove me to criminal justice work. The unfairness of it all made me want to be a defender. The power dynamic that I came to understand made me become a prosecutor. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the problem. We know that the criminal justice system needs reform. We know that there are 2.3 million people in American jails and prisons, making us the most incarcerated nation on the planet. 
We know that there's another 7 million people on probation or parole. We know that the criminal justice system disproportionately affects people of color, particularly poor people of color. And we know that there are system failures happening everywhere that bring people to our courtrooms, but what we do not discuss is how ill-equipped our prosecutors are to receive them. When we talk about criminal justice reform, we as a society focus on three things. We complain, we tweet, we protest about the police, about sentencing laws, about prison. We rarely, if ever, talk about the prosecutor. In the fall of 2009, a young man was arrested by the Boston Police Department. He was 18 years old, he was African American, and he was a senior at a local public school. He had his sights set on college, but his part-time minimum wage job wasn't providing the financial opportunity he needed to enroll in school. In a series of bad decisions, he stole 30 laptops from the store and sold them on the internet. This led to his arrest and a criminal complaint of 30 felony charges. The potential jail time he faced is what stressed Christopher out the most, but what he had little understanding of was the impact a criminal record would have on his future. I was standing in arraignments that day when Christopher's case came across my desk, and at the risk of sounding dramatic in that moment, I had Christopher's life in my hands. I was 29 years old, a brand new prosecutor, and I had little appreciation for the decisions that I would make would impact Christopher's life. Christopher's case was a serious one and needed to be dealt with as such, but I didn't think that branding him a felon for the rest of his life was the right answer. For the most part, prosecutors step onto the job with little appreciation of the impact of our decisions, regardless of our intent. Despite our broad discretion, we learn to avoid risk at all costs, rendering our discretion basically useless. History has conditioned us to believe that somehow the criminal justice system brings about accountability and improves public safety despite evidence to the contrary. We're judged internally and externally by our convictions and our trial wins, so prosecutors aren't really incentivized to be creative in our case positions, dispositions or to take risks on people we might not otherwise. We stick to an outdated method, counterproductive to achieving the very goal that we all want, and that's safer communities. Yet most prosecutors standing in my space would have arraigned Christopher. They have little appreciation for what we can do. Arraigning Christopher would give him a criminal record, making it harder for him to get a job, setting in motion a cycle that defines the failing criminal justice system today. With a criminal record and without a job, Christopher would be able, unable to find employment, education, or stable housing. Without those protective factors in his life, Christopher would be more likely to commit further more serious crime. The more contact Christopher had with the criminal justice system, the more likely it would be that he would return again and again and again, all at tremendous social cost to his children, to his family, and to his peers. And ladies and gentlemen, it is a terrible public safety outcome for the rest of us. When I came out of law school, I did the same thing as everybody else. I came out as a prosecutor, expected to do justice, but I never learned what justice was in my classes. None of us do. None of us do. And yet, prosecutors are the most powerful actors in the criminal justice system. Our power is virtually boundless. In most cases, not the judge, not the police, not the legislature, not the mayor, not the governor, not the president can tell us how to prosecute our cases. 
The decision to arraign Christopher and give him a criminal record was exclusively mine. I would choose whether to prosecute him for 30 felonies, for one felony, for a misdemeanor, or at all. I would choose whether to leverage Christopher into a plea deal or to take the case to trial, and ultimately, I'd be in a position to ask for Christopher to go to jail. These are decisions that prosecutors make every day, unfettered, and we are unaware and untrained of the grave consequences of those decisions. One night this past summer, I was at a a small gathering of professional men of color from around the city, and as I stood there stuffing free finger sandwiches into my mouth, as you do as a public servant, I noticed (laughs) across the room a young man waving and smiling at me and approaching me. And I I recognized him, but I, I couldn't place from where. And before I knew it, this young man was hugging me and thanking me. You cared about me, and you changed my life. It was Christopher. See, I never arraigned Christopher. He never faced a judge or a jail. He never had a criminal record. Instead, I worked with Christopher, first on being accountable for his actions, and then putting him in a position where he wouldn't reoffend. We recovered 75% of the computers that he sold and gave them back to Best Buy and came up with a financial plan to repay for the computers we couldn't recover. Christopher did community service. He wrote an essay reflecting on how this case could impact his future and that of the community. He applied to college, he obtained financial aid, and he went on to graduate from a four-year school. After we... After we finished hugging, I looked at his name tag to learn that Christopher was a manager of a large bank in Boston. Christopher had accomplished making a lot more money than me. (laughs) Christopher had accomplished all of this in the six years since I had first seen him in Roxbury Court. I can't take credit for Christopher's journey to success, but I certainly did my part to keep him on the path. There are thousands of Christophers out there. Some locked in our jails and prisons. We need thousands of prosecutors to recognize that and to protect them. An employed Christopher is better for public safety than a condemned one. It's a bigger win for all of us. In retrospect, the decision not to throw the book at Christopher makes perfect sense. When I saw him that first day in Roxbury Court, I didn't see a criminal standing there. I saw myself, a young person in need of intervention. As an individual caught selling a large quantity of drugs in my late teens, I knew firsthand the power of opportunity as opposed to the wrath of the criminal justice system. Along the way, with the help of my and guidance of my district attorney, my supervisor, and judges, I learned the power of the prosecutor to change lives instead of ruining them. And that's how we do it in Boston. We helped a woman who was arrested for stealing groceries to feed her kids get a job. Instead of putting an abused teenager in in adult jail for punching another teenager, we secured mental health treatment and community supervision. A runaway girl who was arrested for prostituting to survive on the streets needed a safe place to live and grow, something we could help her with. I even helped a young man who was so afraid of the older gang kids showing up after school that one morning, instead of a lunchbox into his backpack, he put a loaded 9mm. We would spend our time that we would normally take prepping our cases for months and months for trial down the road by coming up with real solutions to the problems as they presented. Which is the better way to spend our time? 
How would you prefer your prosecutors to spend theirs? Why are we spending $80 billion on a prison industry that we know is failing when we can take that money and reallocate it into education, into mental health treatment, into substance abuse treatment, into community investment so we can develop our neighborhoods? So why should this matter to you? Well, one, we're spending a lot of money. Our money. It costs $109,000 in some states to lock up a teenager for a year with a 60% chance that that person will return to the very same system. That is a terrible return on investment. Number two, it's the right thing to do. If prosecutors were a part of creating the problem, it's incumbent on us to create a solution, and we can do that using other disciplines that have already done the data and research for us. And number three, your voice and your vote can make that happen. The next time there's a local district attorney's election in your jurisdiction, ask the candidates these questions. One, what are you doing to make me and my neighbors safer? Two, what data are you collecting and what are you training your prosecutors to make sure that it's working? And number three, if it's not working for everybody, what are you doing to fix it? If they can't answer the questions, they shouldn't be doing the job. Each one of you, that raised your hand at the beginning of this talk is a living, breathing example of the power of opportunity, of intervention, of support, and of love. While each of you may have faced your own brand of discipline for whatever malfeasances you committed, barely any of you needed a day in jail to make you the people that you are today some of the greatest minds on the planet. Every day, thousands of times a day, prosecutors around the United States wield power so great that it can bring about catastrophe as quickly as it can bring about opportunity, intervention, support, and yes, even love. Those qualities are the the hallmarks of a strong community, and a strong community is a safe one. If our communities are broken, don't let the lawyers that you elect fix them with outdated, inefficient, expensive methods. Demand more. Vote for the prosecutor that is helping people stay out of jail, not putting them in. Demand better. You deserve it. Your children deserve it. The people who are tied up in the system deserve it. But most of all, the people that we are sworn to protect and do justice for demand it. We must, we must do better. We've just heard clips today, starting with Jacobin Radio speaking in two parts with James Foreman Jr., the author of Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. Ezra Klein talked with Angela J. Davis, not of the Black Panthers, in two parts about why prosecutors are the key to criminal justice reform. Our activism for today comes care of real justice, as we heard from Sean King about their campaign to remake the landscape of elected prosecutors across the country. Again, for details, go to realjustice.team. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk from Adam Foss describing the good that prosecutors can do when they go into the job with the right mindset. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Craig from rural Ohio. And I just listened to the comments of your conservative listener, Sam, from the show about Martin Luther King. 
And it struck me how he seems to have this bizarre misconception about what us on the left actually think. And this, I've noticed this from uh, some of the commentators that he listed, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, Dave Rubin, etc. So I just wanted to call, call in and real quickly run through some of the misconceptions about us that he seems to hold. First of all, the idea that we are obsessed with hating capitalism, I don't think of capitalism as, well, I do think of capitalism as the problem, but to me, capitalism is more about the concentration of wealth in the hands of landlords, landowners, people that control the economy. What I believe in is a market economy, and there is a distinction between those two. Along those lines, I agree with Marx's critique of capitalism, but I do not agree with Marx's pre-Soviet call for communism. And this is another thing that they seem to do all the time. They seem to think that we want a return to a Soviet-style society. Marx didn't have the benefit of learning the lesson of what would happen in such a society, whereas we have. So I personally am looking for a market economy that has more controls placed upon it so that we don't get uh, the kind of nightmare capitalism scenario that Marx warned about and that we're now seeing all over the world. Along those lines, I don't love big government. Every time I hear someone say that, you know, the left just likes big government, um, it's a tell to me because I just see government as a check on corporatism. To me, government is a tool, and we should be using that tool, especially in a a democracy, to place controls on areas where things are getting out of hand. The next point is that we on the left are champions of free, free speech, have always been champions of free speech. We've seen throughout history that the right often cracks down on speech, especially when they gain more power. And the left has been the one saying, no, uh, that's sacrosanct. Similarly, we have always been the champions of individual liberty. All of our policy preferences from universal public education to reproductive rights to workplace protections and then to the police state, environmental justice, etc., enhance personal freedom. It just bugs me that the right wing is now claiming that they're the ones who are the champions of personal liberty, freedom, and speech. We are, we always have been. Lastly, I never really hear them think carefully about the the looming threat of climate change, resource scarcity, inequality. Um, I know Jordan Peterson talks about it, but I don't don't buy his uh, spiel on inequality in particular. Um, We're facing a world in which the choice is going to be between individualism and communitarianism. And I think if we go down the road of individualism, which it seems like the planet or everyone, at least a lot of governments, are doing now, there lies disaster. We need to have more communities working together, people working together, because what I see developing in this unstable world is a lurch to the right. And we're seeing that all over with the rise of fascism in our country, in other countries, the rise of neo-Nazism. That's the real threat. So their obsession with the threat from people like me and my and fellow leftists, 
I just find bizarre. I don't know why they're so, you know, worried about the left. I know it has to do with、uh, their concerns about political correctness and all that. But I just see the threat coming from the right at this moment in history, not the left. Sorry that was a little long, but thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Bye. Hi Jay, this is Marguerite from Fortuna again. I just want to respond to V from New York、um, in his discussion about MLK and paternalism. He spoke a lot of things from the Black American culture, and I want to give another viewpoint on that.、Um, one thing he mentioned was the concept of paternalism and the protection that Black men have felt and may feel. Due to the, the raping of Black women through the time of slavery, and I would like to turn that and also look at the fact that that was a great harm done to women as well, not just primarily being the victims, but also in the fact that they were made to watch and had to watch their men being whipped and lynched, and they were the ones who often directly cared for those bodies and prepared them for burial if necessary. So there really is a a mutual protection and a mutual feel of care between black men and women through that time. And I did go ahead and look up that summer of our discontent, and it does have that one line about the commonality of women being working. But there's really nothing else in that speech that speaks to the honor of women and the roles that they have played in the marches. And the civil rights movement in general, and this is not a new critique. There was actually a critique from Arnold Hedgeman, who was a civil rights leader and who was in a Philip Randolph circle, who actually said, "Suffice to say that the male would be better advised to spend less time mourning the loss of his superiority and more time working in partnership with women." End quote. She is was working at that time. There were other women, such as Mary Hamilton, who、um, was the one who actually got all women known as Miss during the court case, which led to women being known as Ms. if they are not married. You can both look these up online, and there was a really lovely NPR and Code Switch discussion on Mary Hamilton. Who was approached by many civil rights leaders and actually was、um, propositioned by、um, Reverend King himself、um, because we knew he had multiple affairs. So I think the critiques that were laid out、um, are not just from today. There are also critiques that were had at the time in the 1960s and the 1940s, and I think it's appropriate to look back in that way. And then looking as to currently, yes, women are double minorities. So we may be preferred in hiring in some ways, but we also only make 65% of what white men make, where black men still make 73% of white, what white men make. So there is still male supremacy. Black men still do have、um, male privilege. There is a really wonderful TED talk by Kimberly Crenshaw. That talks about the urgency of intersectionality. That talks about why we know the name of Eric Garner and Mike Brown and Tim Rice, but we don't know the names of Michelle Crusoe, Tanisha Anderson, or Ora Rosier. Although all of these people have been killed by police, so 
I think that there are fair critiques to MLK's perception and honoring or lack thereof of women. And I think it's okay to talk about them and let that be known in knowing that our people are not always ideal and perfect, that they are human and they can be seen as products of their time, but also be critiqued for what they do at that time and how we see them now. So thanks for all you do, Jay. Thanks for the opportunity to respond. Sorry, it ran long. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now today, uh, just a, a peek behind the production curtain here at the show, and also a question for you. As you may have noticed today, the show took a bit of a turn for the specific, which I, I sometimes do, but uh, today really in particular. And I didn't set out to do that today, and I didn't say I want to make a show about prosecutors. I was looking more broadly at the criminal justice system and interactions with the police and all of that, and, uh, and the, the prosecutor episode just sort of emerged from that, uh, naturally, I, I've described the show similar to how Michelangelo talked about his statues that, you know, within the block of marble, the, the statue already exists. He just has to chip away at it in order to reveal it. That's a bit how I feel about this show and all of the research that goes into it. You know, I, I have these like dozens of hours of content and I feel like the show is already in there somewhere. I just have to pull it out. And so, Doing the research for today's show, I, I saw this thread between the prosecutors, and then we came up with the activism that was focused specifically on prosecutors. I thought, perfect, like, this is a focus that I can really uh, get into. And in the back of my mind, as I was trying to figure out how much do I want to focus on prosecutors and the broader issues that you can sort of see through the issue of prosecutors, rather than focusing on individual news stories or uh, individual interactions with police and and sort of using that as the lens through which to see criminal justice. I, I had this voice in the back of my head, a, a listener within the last six months or so sent an email saying specifically that he really liked the episodes that have sort of a broad and, and historical context to them, whereas the the sort of newsy shows that focus more on current events or, or try to pull together a series of, of clips that are themselves individual news pieces he finds less interesting, you know, which sort of makes sense. But uh, his perspective was, you know, look, th that's that's what the other shows are for. That's what a daily news show is for, is to keep up with what's going on. I don't need Best of the Left to do like a rundown of recent news stories. I need Best of the Left to give me context so I thought that was good advice. I liked it. Uh, I liked the sound of it. I liked how those shows generally come out. I hadn't put too much thought into that specific idea myself before I got that feedback. And now that I have had that feedback in the last several months, that's been going through my head for a little while. And 
So hopefully everyone's happy with the show and, and maybe everyone agrees with that advice. But I thought, you know, I should probably ask if other people have any advice on this subject. I would love anyone's feedback on what types of episodes you like the most. Because yeah, as I said, I had this, this one listener feedback that rings in my head every once in a while. And, and it definitely guides uh, how I put shows together. But maybe there are some other people with some good advice. So I don't have any fancy survey I want you to take or anything like that. But if you have like literally one or two sentences that you want to email in and just say, here are the types of episodes I like and why I think uh, I like them or why I think there should be more of them or why the show should focus on uh, this or that, I would love to hear it. Broadly speaking, there are, as I said, the sort of more newsy, the more contemporary shows that focus on something that's happening. There's the more contextual shows that take a broad concept and just try to talk about the concept. There are the more historical shows that try to give not just uh, contemporary, but also historical context, something that's going on. And I don't know, maybe even uh, other more uh, gray area, nuanced versions uh, of episode types that I'm not even thinking of. But if you've been a regular listener and you have an opinion, <laughs> I would love to hear it. So you can just email me, j at bestofleft.com, or if you like, send in a voicemail message, 202-999-3991, and, and just let me know what, what types of episodes you like. You know, we're not voting. I'm not putting the structure of the show up for a vote, but I, I would just love to have more feedback or advice on uh, on what people like so that I can keep that in mind as I craft episodes in the future. So again, just email me, j at bestofleft.com, or as always uh, on this topic or any other, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, of course, to all those who have supported the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.